Broadcasting from the traditional territories of the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Husanich people. Welcome to this documentary, featuring an interview about anti-racist and some key reflections for our Yuvik life. My name is Matilde Cervantes. I am a PhD student in the interdisciplinary program here at the University of Victoria. My research interests include anti-racist initiatives in the community, so we are going to have my colleague Carol Bilson, who is also a PhD student in the Social Dimensions of Health program. She's going to be our guest and she will talk to us about anti-racism. Uh, yeah, so here we are uh, with Carol Bilson. Um, and I would like to ask her if she could uh, tell us a little bit of who you are, Carol and what's your background and thank you so much for accepting this interview and participating in this conversation. Yeah, hi, uh, Mati. Um, really happy to be here with you folks today. Um, first, I guess I introduce myself. I am a Latinx uh, mixed race woman. Um, my background is Mapuche, Spanish, and German. I am from the Andean region of Chile and um, traditionally called Waimapu. Uh, my family was exiled uh, to Argentina and then immigrated to Canada after uh, the military coup in Chile. Um, so I've been in Canada um, for uh, several decades now and I grew up here. Uh, I grew up on uh, Blackfoot territory which is in southern Alberta and uh, I came to Lekwungen, uh, Songhean, Esquimalt and Wasanic territories in 2009 to do my master's uh, in indigenous governance and now I am doing my doctorate and PhD in the program of social dimensions of health um, doing specific research around um, transformative justice and accountability processes in gender-based violence with men and masculine identified folks. So that's a little bit about who I am and uh, what uh, uh, my role here on campus is. I'm a student. Um, so uh, yeah, that's... Yeah, thank yeah. you so much, Carol. Um, yeah, so this, this project and this conversation is around anti-racism. Um, so I'm just wondering how could we create an anti-racist and healthy campus? What do you think about that? How we could do it? Mm -hmm. Like I know it's a, like the question could be very easy to say, but hard to do it, right? Mm. Uh, but I know you have some experience in working on universities and especially with anti-violence uh, initiatives. So yeah, what, what could we do to create an anti-racist and healthy campus? Absolutely. Um, I think the first thing about recognizing any kind of social harm, specifically uh, racism, is to recognize the, the systemic nature of it. So we are really dealing with institution here, like a university institution uh, that has really benefited and held up um, racial indifference and, um, and racism um, through the nature of its creation, um, uh, through the 
existence of colonization and through uh, the continued and ongoing nature of, of capitalism and, um, and even neoliberalism, these institutions have really benefited um, from the normalcy and I guess the dominance of uh, white supremacy. And so the first thing I think when we address this uh, racism or we want to create an anti-racist space is to recognize how deeply embedded it is how powerfully systemic it is and so we're uh, we're changing a system which is not something that is easily changeable but if we are to create things that are beyond symbolic uh gestures you know we really have to start with the 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 systems and so in an institution i think the system lies with deeply within the power structure and so that is from the administration to the faculty to the deans to the HR department to the human rights departments to um, all the systems that basically ensure that this university runs and I think thinking about ways to really um, create an awareness around what racism could look like um, where these things aren't necessarily centered as the primary reason why we're functioning around them. And so if we are to create, like, um, I think about um, just, like, the amount of professors that are hired from um, Black and Indigenous and people of colour communities. And I also think the recognition also of the amount of curriculum that is taught around racism um, especially outside of the humanities where there's generally a tendency to assume that those things will be taught within the curriculum, but not necessarily so. Um, and also um, assuming that just because we have a person of color or an indigenous person or a black person at the front of the class or in a position of um, power, that they will function in a way that is anti-racist. Um, so really recognizing that um, identity doesn't necessarily um, equate to equity and to justice doing within the system. Um, and actually often the people that have sometimes had to work in these spaces and to keep themselves safe are sometimes the biggest proponents of white supremacy and keeping the system as it is because they've had to keep themselves safe within these systems. And so to not just provide um, a position or especially positions of power or positions of equity or, or um, in administration and, and in the human rights and equity uh, um, roles, but to actually give them an authority and to give um, a, a justice and a decolonial perspective to that, to that person and an authority to then fulfill the policies that could actually um, sometimes necessarily go against power systems that have held up this university. And so um, I was actually at um, the Orange Shirt uh, event that happened um, just over the summer where the new president um, had come to uh, speak on the Orange Shirt Day and the numerous children that have been currently found at residential schools and how we're recognizing and honoring uh, those children, but more so recognizing the history of institutions in their capacity to hold up and silence and hide that history. And also what, you know, he spoke to a truth being put at our feet and what are we gonna do based on that truth now? And how are we gonna interrupt that? And so he mentioned at that talk that he was gonna prioritize indigenous issues. 
And, um, and so this is where I, I often think uh, that's an excellent um, space to start because as the president of the university, he holds uh, the biggest power to prioritize resources and uh, policy change. And so that's a great place to start. And so that these things are not, A, left to the people with the least amount of power in these institutions, which are the students and the staff, and actually left more into the administration and the and uh, faculty and the higher management um, departments within this university. And so to me, it's like a, a real questioning. Uh, I also saw uh, a hiring, how many folks of diversity, and not just racial diversity, but gender diversity, disabled diversity, um, to create these spaces, we cannot just, um, you know, as Audre Lorde says, there's nobody has a single issued life. So we can't just look at racism in a vacuum. This will necessarily mean, do we consider poverty? Do we consider ability? Do we consider gender when we consider, when we think of making these spaces uh, safer for race and diversity? Um, so to really consider those things. But so so it's in the hiring of these uh, these professors and not just in a tokenizing way, um, but in an actual, in a, in, in a place of authority and in a place where the change is received also by the faculties that they're in. And so that they're, they don't come up to deans that will silence their work or ask them to pull back when they have public pushback, but to actually have safe spaces in these universities and the power behind them to create these change and promote this diversity and anti-racist and um, e equitable spaces within the campus. And then to be able to push back um, to sometimes the community, sometimes the media, um, who will require a status quo or an expectation that white supremacy be held up or that the dominant heteronormative cis patriarchy will be maintained, you know, um, within these institutional spaces. And so to really give people voice and power. I also think that when students um, experience racism within our walls and our, within our institutional spaces, do we have accountability processes that are really effective in order to create safety? Uh, do we have the people that are attending to their investigations? Are they from a lived experience? Um, or are they, uh, once again, from the dominant uh, group um, doing their best with good intentions because often that is what we primarily see uh, when we see investigations or we see the people that hold the conduct office or the equity and human rights, we still find the dominant group is still overly represented and their efforts are always from a place of theoretical knowing of what racism is or an academic knowing of what racism is or what violence and oppression is. And so literally they lean deeply on their policies, but never from a lived experience of what racism really is and what that emotional toll is and working from a place of a very real and lived experience place to create that change. Um, so often, uh, students will experience a bigger harm trying to access accountability uh, when they have to navigate that their investigator or that the person that is holding the power in their investigation or in their accountability processes is only coming from a place of good intentions, theory, and academia. So I also think that when we 
when violence and uh, racism does happen, do we have the accountability processes to really ensure that, that we can create change and create safety for that student? Great, yeah, um, definitely the safe spaces are so important and all the things you just mentioned. And I was wondering um, about white fragility because uh, two years ago, we had Robin DeAngelo in the, at the University of Victoria. She was presenting her book, and I, I, I want to know what are your thoughts around these um, different concepts, right, that we heard about white supremacy, and you just mentioned it, white fragility, white guilt, and maybe for some people, these concepts are maybe new. Like, I remember when I came from Mexico two years ago, actually, or three years ago, um, I wasn't familiar with the um, with this with this concept of white fragility. So, what are your thoughts around, and how could you explain what it is for people that maybe uh, doesn't know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, as someone who attended that talk um, and uh, is uh, as read uh, Robin Diaz and Joel and other um, anti-racist um, scholars. I think it was an, an important breakthrough in a conversation that needed to happen within the white community, and I would say in the dominant community. Um, often people of color, indigenous people, uh, different racialized communities have attempted to speak to the dominant group. And we are really at such a dis differentiation in between experience that, um, for a long time, I would say white people didn't, A, first of all, they, they didn't recognize themselves as a culture, as a people, as a collective, but deeply within um, white supremacy are the ideas of individualism. And so they see themselves deeply individual. And so when they walk into a room, they walk in as just the person who showed up that day um, with their history of maybe a, you know two decades of living and and that's it and that's how they understand themselves or you know as you know an individual and unfortunately when you uh, move outside of whiteness you will often find communities of collectivity so most communities see themselves as a people as a culture um, and recognize a history behind who they are and and even um, to their see themselves beneficially as someone who will um, I would say like act collectively versus an as an individual um, even myself it was never understood that my scholarly gains or my life gains would just be for me. They would always be something that would be returned to my community for the benefit of all, for the greater benefit. And that I understand that as a knowing that comes more from a collective culture versus the individualistic uh, and deeply capitalistic culture, which is where that self-made man and, you know, uh, he made his way to the top by himself narratives um, really collide. And so... 
so for white people, I think for the first time to see themselves as a people um, that do and think and act very similarly, especially when it comes to race, we were coming up to a huge difference in, in, in terms of experience and lived experience. So as racialized people, we recognize our race very early on when you're not part of the dominant group. So you have an entirely lived experience of racism. And so, and then you have another community that's coming in who has just in maybe the last five years started to recognize that they are a group, uh, they are a dominant group, and that they are a, a people and a culture. Uh, whiteness is a culture. Whiteness does have a, a, a way of being. It is reflected in, in multiple people, even though they see themselves individualistically, their behavior is very collective in nature, especially when it comes to seeing an idea of themselves as benevolent or seeing themselves as um, individualistic. And so those ideas um, hold power. And so when we confront those ideas, there's often a fragility uh, that comes, uh, a resistance to like, oh no, but it's m me, you know, Susie as my good intentions or Joe or, or Bob or, or who, you know, just as my good, as my lived experience as, you know, for the last couple of decades. And this is what I want, you know, or this is what, who my, my goals are versus not understanding a collective history of, can, of Canada and of colonization where there was a massive uh, historical violence that was perpetrated on these lands to the benefit of the dominant group. And that then they had to erase those crimes in order for their children to now uh, benefit from the land, from the resources, from the water, and from the erasure of indigeneity on these territories. And so to have reservations, to have residential schools, to have uh, people of color in a constant state of either poverty or second-class citizens, um, to not be able to see that within themselves as, the, as they've benefited from those experiences um, isn't uh, accidental. It was very strategic. And um, for many folks, like the shock that, that came with, oh, we're shocked that children were murdered under our watch and that the last residential school was, you know, not even closed, you know, more than two decades ago uh, in, in the 90s, um, and for them to be shocked that children were tortured, were sexually abused, uh, and were murdered um, under the watch of nuns and governments that benefited from that. And so, so for the masses to be shocked and horrified by that, that is only something that they, their shock and their horror has come because um, Indigenous people have always known the depth and the pain and the brutality of their genocide. And it's, these stories have been well known in the community as long as uh, the communities have had to experience this violence. And so that erasure out of the education system and out of the collective media was not accidental. And so it's important to recognize that it's institutions like these universities and high schools and um, the whole entire of the education system have been um, basically um, designed to create that good white uh, Canadian, polite Canadian idea and narrative um, while they're still 
massacre and genocide have happened um, at their feet. And so when we're confronted with these two realities, it's absolutely you're going to see um, the fragility comes from not knowing the fragility comes from not recognizing themselves as a people and a culture who have benefited from genocide and then having to then say, you know, my narratives of my good benevolent Canadian is being dismantled in front of me and I don't have any recourse or any other way to identify myself and how do I belong now and where do I find belonging when I've been now told that these aren't my lands and uh, you know, the idea of Canadian even has to be really reconsidered. And so um, these ideas really cause that resistance, the defensiveness, um, the false narratives of, of, of goodness or, um, and so that's always going to cause a huge amount of resistance. And, and, and now where the fragility becomes a further source of violence is when it is all consuming and then it further silences those narratives of truth. And so when people become so discomforted with the reality that they force people of color to basically be quiet, it becomes where, which is what Robin DiAngelo says, it becomes another point of racial bullying where white people become so discomforted and they become so um, unsettled that they will cry, uh, take up a lot of space with um, guilt and grief, um, which is norm, is absolutely normal for once you realize what the truth is. But those are not the places for people of color to then come in and have to support and comfort uh, white folks um, about their own history and their own realities, but really should be a place of other white people gathering together to really recognize, oh, this has been, um, colonization was like the collective blinding of all of us, and for all of us to come to a place of truth, but that is not the burden of Indigenous people, Black people, um, gender diverse people to then carry for us and to then comfort us through that. And so, uh, so not you know, there will be a lot of, uh, as we say, white tears, and that is absolutely to be expected. What is not to be expected is that uh, racialized people then uh, be the Kleenex, be the, the counselors for that white fragility, and, uh, and to really be able to look for their own resources and support themselves through peer groups, uh, through counseling, through uh, somatic work, uh, to really bring themselves into an awareness of what the reality of Canada, the history of Canada, and of the Americas, because colonization did not just happen in Canada, but it happened in the United States, and it happened all in Central America and in South America. And there, there will always be these dominant groups uh, that benefited from a lot of genocide and a lot of theft of land and waters and governments and dispossessing other people, primarily indigenous people, and then suppressing and oppressing uh, black and brown people into a minority status so that they can live comfortably on these lands and live with this narrative of goodness and uh, benevolence and an assumed kind of even innocence um, on these territories when that is the kind of unfortunately the farthest thing from the truth. So that's, that's around white fragility and, and, and how we can kind of work with that um, or deal with that. 
Yeah, definitely these are uh, deep, deep reflections that require deep work, yeah. right? A lot of uh, deep work in many, um, for, for many people, not only for white folks, but also for the BIPOC community. So each one of us, we need to, we have work to do to create a healthy uh, and anti-racist community at the University of Victoria. <clears throat> and then because the University of Victoria, what makes this community, we have many roles, like people who are faculty members, administrative, professors, um, students, um, everyone is important to um, to be part of this community, to make this community healthy, but also uh, the work that each one of us is doing, it's so meaningful, it's important, and it's a deep work that we need to do, depending on for history, right? So now this makes me think about um, that international students, because UVic has a good amount of international students, and now that we are going back to classes in person, uh, in campus, I'm I'm thinking about how or what the international students, they need to know to promote these steps towards social justice um, approach or work, also towards an equity, inclusion, and diversity perspectives and work, um, of course, to do it better and beyond the rhetoric. What international students do you think we need to know? And then especially because you were talking also about this Canadian history that maybe we are not aware until we arrive to Canada, like not before, like from from the outside as a as a foreigner, we are not aware of many of these things until we arrive here and start learning. And then, so then in my case, I was so eager to participate in these um, anti-colonial initiatives, anti-oppressive, um, anti-racist, and I, I was ready to do it and to keep learning, and I still, and that's why I'm doing this, right? Uh, but, but it was a process. Like the first year for me was about learning and understanding something that wasn't on my radar before coming to Canada. Uh, actually, it was kind of like a shift and th that that was quite a process. So I'm thinking how we can facilitate also this uh, deep understanding in with compassion and with uh, empathy also for their own histories as an international students coming here. Uh, what will be your reflections around this and the message to international students? Yeah, um, I always thought that the university could really do and benefit from creating uh, collective community spaces that would bring specific issues uh, to campus. So like, you know, we have the Michelle Pujol room um, or even uh, the front area by the student union building um, where there could be more collective conversations about um, important historical days, so especially like on Orange Shirt uh, Day, which brought a huge amount of awareness to about residential schools. Uh, but we just had Emancipation Day uh, just go by, where we are talking about uh, the black community and slavery in Canada, and what was the black history. It would also be really good to speak about other communities who've experienced racism um, historically through Canada, so that 
all students from all faculties can be informed. There's going to be a collective learning on this day uh, about this topic. Um, I also think even as, um, you know, my parents, when they first immigrated, they had to take a Canadian test to become citizens or whatever. And I thought it was so incredible that in none of that, there was like a lot of education around who John A. Macdonald was and the prime ministers and what the Queen's role was and uh, languages and national languages, but no conversation, absolutely zero content, zero curriculum around Indigenous histories, Indigenous territories, what the basic understanding. And so I think these universities, as educational uh, institutions, we, we specialize in education, we specialize in teaching people. So why cannot we create, um, even from like as a collective uh, in the international students who already like yourself, who've been here a couple years, create pamphlets or presentations for the new students coming in so that they can uh, receive that experience like as new students coming in with a new curriculum. Like, what did I learn about Canada's history? What did I know learn about the political landscape that's happening here now um, from Indigenous um, efforts to decolonize, from uh, Black and BIPOC folks to uh, create more anti-racist spaces, um, and with like Black Lives Matters movement? And what did this mean on these lands so that when foreign students come, they get a better understanding of what's happening socially, politically on these territories and on these lands and in Canada. And to it also, I think, um, learning about Indigenous histories here uh, obviously made me recognize that uh, in Latin America, we had our own colonial history. And it was on my responsibility to then become familiar with that and recognize that we didn't just kind of emerge out of a vacuum and then just show up here with our best hopes, but to really understand that we, in every room, we show up with our history, our collective history, our political history, our gendered histories, and that uh, we don't show up neutral and without power. And so in every room, I always say there's there's a power that shows up with every person that shows up. And if there is more than two people in the room, a power disbalance can create as a, always the potential for abuse and violence. So uh, if we all showed up with an awareness, oh, like I hold what privileges, what powers do I hold? Because while I hold racialized um disadvantages, I also hold able-bodied privileges and powers. And so to really be able to recognize myself within the wholeness of who I am with, um, under, I guess not like with privileges and discriminations and points of violence that I have experienced. Um, but that also like, while uh, my ability, uh, I'm not transgender person. So that cis privilege allows me to really advocate for, um, so yes, while we have a rainbow crosswalk, do we have transgender counselors? Uh, do we have transgender supports? And so I can use my privileges and powers, uh, not just uh, you know, as a, something that benefits me, but something to use as an advocate. And so how do we recognize ourselves more holistically? And so I think it's a real opportunity to create educational content, uh, programming, um, spaces, and then also like cultural spaces, uh, safe spaces that we can create just for that community. I, I think we used to do um, craft nights uh, with different communities of, you know, sometimes within the queer community, sometimes uh, within racialized communities. Um, 
um, and different um, communities also held their nights of feasting and their nights of religious practice. Like, do we have places for people to pray when, especially when they re are required to pray five times a day? Um, do we have, have we thought about these things? Um, and so we use our power and our privilege, but also our points of experience, oppression and justice to be, um, advocates and also people that hold space for others. And I think that's really on the university to like provide food, uh, provide space, provide comfortable seating uh, for those things to happen. I think sometimes it's just a matter of making space and providing, um, like I said, just the basics of um, nice rooms, um, some nourishment, some refreshments, and then allowing the trusting the community, the student community to really hold that space for themselves. Um, but to make that actually a priority within the university. And so I always think it like, like there's no better time in our lives where education is such a center point of what we're doing here to then create education for other uh, communities and space and advocate for that. Like, you know, do, I'm not a Muslim person, but I would really, I really care that they have spaces that they can safely pray. Um, I, I want, um, supports and counseling for my queer community, uh, for my disabled community. I want those things for, I see those things as important for a safe community to exist on this campus. Yeah. So. And that's, that's awesome, Carol. And actually we, we have those community resources at UVic and I will, I will offer a link or I will find a way to share those resources because yeah, there is a, a safe space to pray for a Muslim community. And there are other um, initiatives around campus, but sometimes uh, the, the how to reach out those communities or some people doesn't know about that. Uh, so it's important to um, share those uh, community resources. We will find a way to do it. And so thank you so much for this uh, very rich conversation and be willing to share in all your wisdom. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, so final thoughts and also to to ask if you are okay uh, i know we we already consent to this interview in advance but i want to to ask you if it's okay to share this in a podcast and if you are okay sharing this information in different uh with different channels at the university of victoria are you okay with that yeah yeah absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> thank you yeah because yeah. Uh, i think it's it's a great um great conversation that we have had here and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and if you would like to share some final thoughts before we wrap up um yeah i thank you so much thank you so much for the opportunity to be interviewed and to talk to you today and i believe in us i believe on this campus and i believe uh, we have the capacity to make safer spaces for uh, all communities um, mindfully and carefully and that's my dream it's why i'm here and why i continue to do the work that i do thank you so much maddie for this opportunity thank you carol and thank you everyone for listening This podcast was supported by the Student Life Grant and the Human Rights Office Volunteer Educational Program. Thanks to the Belfie Theatre for their in-kind support, and thank you to the CFUV team for their awesome support and advices. <laughs>